and welcome to The Family of Things, a podcast series where I get to talk to people about what shaped them and what motivates them. I'm Helen Shaw, and in this episode, I'm with the mindful man, psychologist and writer Tony Bates, someone who I've shared many a long walk with in the Phoenix Park, unpacking perhaps the mysteries of the world and perhaps the madness of mankind. But many of you will already know Tony from his work on radio or in print, writing about mental health and particularly for his advocacy and mission around youth mental health in Ireland. But Tony, I guess as always, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit on you and your life as a psychologist, because I'd like to start with you and your roots and your beginning. I'm always curious about what made us do what we do with our one precious life. And I'm curious about what got you started on your, your path around your curiosity about the life of the mind. And I know a little bit about your mother and Phil Bates, who was one of the founders of the Samaritans. So I think we've always assumed that that was a key trigger for you. But even before we get to talk about Phil, at seven, at eight, at nine, at 10, at 12, when people asked you, Tony, what do you want to be when you grow up? What did you say? Oh, certainly not a psychologist. Um, we wouldn't I, have known the word. I, I don't think I knew what word. a psychologist was. I think was. I, you know probably thought medicine was and, and I began in medicine in UCD. So that was my first entree to a profession. But actually, I think before that, I had done various aptitude tests was part of what we did in secondary school. And they all pointed towards my doing music or doing art or doing English literature. They were the top three. And I did medicine. So actually, I'm not sure that I would have said I wanted to be a doctor when I grow up. I think I probably wanted to be some kind of an artist. Because music is important to you and your dad had a musical life and, and he did influence you in terms of music. So it was probably our strongest connection was through music. He was captain of the army team and they had this it was a quiz on, on RT1 and he was captain. They were on for years. They kept winning because he was so knowledgeable about music and classical music. Now, I grew up in the 60s, really, and, and it wasn't a time when young fellows were listening to classical music, but he began to introduce me to it and, and I, I fell in love with it. And he liked to talk and he, he was never stuck for an opinion on anything. And, uh, you know, when he was 40 years married, I had a big party. And I said, now, this is a man who needs no introduction, but he does need a conclusion. And that was my dad. He did. He just talked for, for, for Ireland. So we would talk and it was mainly my listening. And I learned the discipline of enduring long conversations that were really monologues because he didn't know how to converse. And I, I became very good at actually tolerating slightly overbearing people talking forever. You know, and I still have that talent. And I'm not saying it's always the best thing to be doing, but I certainly learned to listen from him. But that's very telling. It doesn't sound like a great relationship. It no. sounds like a late mm. relationship, which in a sense you learned how not to have a relationship. You know, he loved me. I never doubted that. And his whole life was really a promise that was never fulfilled. You know, in what it, way? Well, he was extraordinarily bright and he was in the army, but he taught extramurally for 40 years in Russian. But he never achieved his dream, which was a PhD or a lectureship in university. And 
he would have loved that. And he, he didn't quite get on in the army. He annoyed people because he talked too much and was too opinionated. And so they let him go at 58 as a lieutenant, lieutenant colonel, whereas they could have promoted him and he could have stayed longer. But he he then lapsed into a very empty sort of retirement where he he had nothing to do. And, and he died at 74. And, and alcohol was a part of that, a big part of that, I'd say. And I think he, him and I, we did connect in my 30s. We went to family therapy and, and uh, well, there was a whole issue that had arisen and we went into that and he, he was so uncomfortable. It was in America where I was over there. It was safe there to go to family therapy with your mother and father. I brought them over. But I was going through a very bad time and, and so he came and he went. And then we went to a ball game that evening or, you know, it was one of the weeks. He, he stayed for about eight weeks. And I remember sitting... Um, with him over drinks and I said, y- y- you know, I'm doing better, I said, you know, it's it's been tough. I had been a few bad years, but I'm doing much better. And he looked at me and he says, well, don't tell your mother. She'll be awful upset. And that was the first real joke. But it was also truth was spoken in that moment in a way it had never been that my mother was marvelously compassionate and kind, but uh, there was always something wrong with you, you know, because you're looking tired or you, you, you got love you, you know, you're, are you, are you taking, take it easy, you know, there was always that. And she could cope with anything except somebody being completely happy, you know, and that was, and that happiness was, a, was almost a sense that she wasn't needed. That's exactly what it was, so that she, she could relate. You know, the kindest thing I could have said to her was, look, I think I have terminal cancer and she would have been all over me like a rash, but she would have done it in the most loving, kindly way, you know, but it would have made her feel hugely needed. So your mom, Phil Bates, and she sadly passed away earlier this year in May. I mean, but at a very fine age, right? She was in her 90s. She was 90 and she was ready to go. It was extraordinary, beautiful, actually, and peaceful. And she was determined to die. I was with her 18 hours right to the end and on my own. And I could just feel her moving into the night, you know, very clear. And... Phil Bates is somebody who's had a profound impact in our society in probably often a quiet way in that many people today will not know her name. But in founding the Samaritans and becoming part at a time when we weren't about family therapy or reaching out or saying I'm broken. And I remember meeting her very early on in my career when (laughs) I did a piece when I was a freelance, must have been in the 80s, around suicide. And I think I must have rung her then in the Samaritans and, and chatted. But she's somebody who obviously had a mission. And I suppose what's often been curious about that is what's it like to be a child of somebody who has a mission? I mean, I, I learned so much from her and we had such a, a kind of a conflictual relationship for so long. And yet it was very good in the end. My mom came out of a time when the mantra was, as she said herself many times, not a word. In the 60s, not a word. She had a spell in hospital under psychiatric care, not a word. That was her... her tell nobody, she meant. Tell nobody. Tell nobody. You know, I, I, I went and visited. I was only allowed in the door in the lobby. And the idea was not a word to your father who was saving the world in the Lebanon and the UN. Not a word to relatives in Cork. Not a word to neighbours. It didn't leave much 
for a 15 year old. And it was later hearing Gay Byrne interview Chad Vara, who was the original founder of the Samaritans in England, an Anglican priest. That was a turning point in her life. This is what I want to do. This is what the world needs. This is not a word thing, it's nonsense. And so she, she broke silence, really, and broke tradition. And with two other women, set up the Samaritans in 1969. And so so that was obviously a very inspiring kind of thing for me. I didn't really understand what she was doing, of course. Um, so, yeah, I mean, <sighs> she cared about people. And I think she had an extraordinary respect for people. And many, many people came to our house for help. My father would joke it was like the Black Rock Clinic in the, in the front room. And I suppose uh, that must have rubbed off on me, you know, that I saw someone kind, see troubled people. And these troubled people later would say very kind things about her. They clearly had benefited from dropping into our kitchen. So, you know, and my mother was always on the phone. So the Samaritans was a no-brainer for her in some ways. It was perfect, you know, because she could listen and she could talk on the phone. And I, I think she was so discreet about it. I had a joke she wouldn't give me the number of the Samaritans. So it was, it was a part of her life she never spoke about. So there was this other world she was living in and she spent an extraordinary amount of time with it. And so she was absent in some way for a lot of my adolescent and early adulthood. But I mean, we had, I still had three younger siblings, but they probably felt that more than me. But, you know, she was otherwise engaged, I would say. But there is a sense that we often go into psychology to understand ourselves more than others. And your mom, as you're saying, she had her own problems, which had made her recognise those painful issues in the world. But in seeing that with her, is that what you think made you aware of wanting to understand yourself and bring you into psychology? I, I was a very troubled kid from three, four, five, six. Very odd behaviours, autistic sort of behaviours, leaving home at four or five in the morning, climbing out the door, my own, a five-year-old, you know, around Navan Road, you know lighting fires, eating parts of my own body, you know, chewing, eating, just extraordinarily troubled. And, you know... Can I ask why? Well, that, that, this is the interesting thing. I had no idea why. But what happened was that rumbled away inside me. Went to school, John Bosco's, mitched, you know, I, I was encupretic, enuretic. I had all kinds of symptoms of, of someone who was... Um, not at all well. And it was a very lonely, isolating experience because I never shared that with anyone. But myself, I remember images of myself in those times having a really rough time. But, you know, I thought that's what life is. Later in my life, when I was 32, I started training in Gestalt therapy, which involves a lot of very deep connecting with one's own body and one's own deeper emotions. And in the course of doing this, it was with, with professionals over a year, we'd have long weekends. And one of the weekends, I began to imagine that there was glass between me and everybody else. And I said to them, there's a pane of glass and I was behind it. And, and, and I thought, well, now that's a nice image, you know, because they couldn't hear me. And then they asked me what it felt like, which is always the question you ask in Gestalt therapy, you know, and, and I began to connect with the feelings. And then all of a sudden, I just collapsed into this kind of screaming rage, not rage, poignant, it was like an animal, in, in wounded animal thing. And, and I ended up on the 
ground and I was rubbing the side of my face along this carpet and I remember I was completely grazed on one side of my face. And of course, everybody was delighted because this is what you're meant to be doing you know, in Gestalt. So they all sat around quietly and let me go through my abreaction, which I understood really it was. And I didn't know what the hell it was about. You know, I had clearly connected with something and I was primally screaming, you know. So I decided it must be about my birth. That at the time was, you know, everybody's into rebirthing. And, you know, so I went and chatted to her and asked her, how was my birth? And my birth was very, very trouble free. And, you know, that was grand. And, and I, she said, why are you asking? And I, I described the scene and she broke down crying. And she said to me, that was a precise memory of what I had lived through in Fever Hospital in Cork when I was three. And my brother died when he was 16 months of meningitis and cephalitis. And he died on Sunday. He got it from German measles, which I also had. And he got it on a Sunday in the morning. He was OK. And 10 o'clock, he was, he was dead in Temple Street. And my mother and father couldn't ever talk about this. My dad collected the remains and brought it to a, a grave, Harl's Cross. And he left the coffin under a tree and went away and that was the end of it that was why we went to family therapy because I, I began to realise as things happened I got the same encephalitis that week and I but my mother went down to Cork where she was from and we were moving between the two cities and she on Friday I got it and I was in fever hospital for a few months and it was um at the time when they expected me to die and they said to her you know you've lost one son and this is going to be very upsetting he probably has four days to live, so you're better off not to upset yourself. So go back to Dublin. And then they would come down, my mother and father, a few weeks later, and they said to them that, well, they did it once or twice. And then they said, look, when you come, he gets terribly upset. So better not to come. So this was, you know, 1955, we're talking, you know. I didn't know anything about separation and the need for contact and attachment. So anyway, lo and behold, I, I stayed there until I was discharged. I came back. How long was that that you were there? It was, you know, probably a month. But it feels it was longer because I was in Cork then for some time. I was so, I wasn't able to walk. I had regressed completely, nappies, everything. And I wouldn't allow myself be touched. I and mean, I wouldn't let my mother come near me. I clearly was in an angry state of mind. So our relationship broke down and she brought me back to Dublin. It didn't work. And then she brought me back to Cork for six months. And I had a further six months down there. And she was in Dublin. For six months? Yeah. So I had a lot of separation. And that was completely... Buried, completely buried, so, but the body doesn't forget. So it was buried yeah. until this Gestalt yeah. episode in your 30s. I think it was screaming to get out all my life. It was a wound that was never far away. And at the same time, I could love Tchaikovsky. I, could, I, I had an intense love of certain things and I had a very active world in my imagination. I, I, and I think that's where I took refuge in beautiful things and story and reading and music. But it was uh, a very troubled when my mother-in-law first met me. She she described me to somebody as a tortured soul. And I think I, I was, you know, I was just never at rest. And I think it was rumbling to get out. And, and what I've learned and what psychology taught me is that the unconscious longs to be integrated. You know, and what is disowned, what has never been properly processed is always seeking to be given a home within 
the story that we have of ourselves. And I didn't have that story. I had a story that people would tell me, you're so lucky your parents are such gorgeous people and you're middle class and you've gone to school, good school. And oh, my goodness, you have everything possible. So my story of me. It didn't match. Didn't match at all. But Tony, I'm really just in thinking about that. I mean, did you remember your brother who died? I mean, what was his name? When all of this came out, did your sense of him as a person become more real? When it all came out. I talked to my father and, and discovered the story that he had taken the body in a white coffin in a neighbor's car and, and they had driven to Mount Jerome and put the coffin in under a tree. Now, the name was on the coffin. All our life, we visited Dean's Grange and we went to see Jim at the Angel's Plot, you know, because we thought he was buried there. I'm, this was the fiction my mother had. My father had told her that. He had never told her how he died. He always said it was for the best. He would have been a vegetable. That's all he said. And he never told her the circumstances of his burial. Okay. This came out and I said, we have to find him. And so Ursula, my wife and I, we began to track down where he was. And it was a bit of detective work. And we found him because there were records. This coffin had been, they don't miss a coffin sitting under a tree in a graveyard. So the coffin had had his name. So they tracked it and he was buried in a grave for unwanted children, an unmarked plot in Mount Jerome, which is still there. We bought the plot. So what was his name? Jim. And I visited that almost every year since I've discovered that I'd be I go to see him on his anniversary. Mm. And knowing the fragility of memory, whether it's restored or true, do you have a sense of Jim? Oh, I do. I do. Extraordinary. And I mean, you know, I've I went through six years of Kleinian analysis. Of what? Kleinian, Melanie Klein, kind of very formal orthodox psychoanalysis, you know, lying on the couch therapist behind. Woody Allen-esque. Yeah, but it was not something you joke about when you're there. It was, Jesus, hard going. <laughs> i tell you that much. But anyway, what everyone thinks about... And was that about, in the States? No, no, I was here. here. I was in Dublin. But, you know, that got down to my memories of Jim. And it was extraordinary what it brought alive in me. I feel very close to him, always have. I go visit on the 16th of May, Mount Jerome. I stand at his grave and I miss him. But I don't miss the 16-month-old. I miss the 64-year-old or this, you know, the person he would be now. I miss his wife, his children. I miss all of what we would have had together. But there's a real sense of being closer to him than almost to my, well, not quite living siblings. I'm very close to them now. But he was the one I was closest to growing up in my mind. But I didn't know it. There was always that missing bit. So you're three, you say? When, I'm three. When he dies? He was 16 months. I and was you're in this period then over the next seven months where, except for a break, you're pretty isolated in Cork. Yeah, I'm pretty isolated at home or in Cork or in hospital. But do you think now, having gone through all mm. those processes, that that's a defining point in making you who you are? Absolutely. It is. It is the fracture in my soul that has, has shaped me, you know, for better and for worse. What's interesting about anchoring your motivation in life coming from, I guess, your own trauma, yeah. your own experience. And, and maybe that's quite common for many psychologists, is that 
something propels them to be fascinated with how we work emotionally and mentally. It's more like a niche that you have to scratch. You know, some people don't have that and, and God bless them and I envy them and they can lie on a beach in Ibiza and read Hello magazine and that's fine. I couldn't do that. And so I read Hermann Hesse and Nietzsche and all these people, you know, people who I didn't really even understand, but I was 17, 18, but I was looking, The Outsider was my favourite book, you know, it was it was people who Come named in. something uh, that was about alienation and disconnection and, and struggling inside. Uh, those kind of stories, oh my God, I could live them. And then as you go on, yeah. and as you say, you became mm. interested in medicine and moving into psychology. And what's interesting in your family is that your brother, your other brother, Mel, becomes a very well-known doctor. And, yeah. and Mel Bates is known for having set up the D-Doc in Dublin and yeah. having a huge profile. So that idea of medicine or healing is also part of what was happening in your family from Phil, from your mother? Yes, I mean, sure, the caring gene was contagious. <laughs> it certainly touched all of us. My sister was an OT, so she was working in... An the, OT? The, in an occupational therapist, yeah. So she was working in that way. So, you know, um, there was just one brother who, who, who did start in dentistry, but he went into IT and systems analysis. But yes, there was, there was no doubt. And our mother, you know, gave us that. And, I, and I'm, I'm very indebted to that. I mean, you know, she gave me the material to work on to become a psychologist in lots of ways. You know, <laughs> I was speaking to her once and I was... Um, Nothing was good comes out of a good childhood. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And she was sitting in the audience. I said, my mother's here and she's the, she's the one who made me the psychologist I am. And and then it was you say, what did you mean by that, you know? It's the Larkin, our parents. Yes. You know, I love Larkin, yes. But I have often said, you know, life at some point decided I was going to be a psychologist. So it said, right, we've got to figure out what kind of training would be good for this guy. So let's start him early. Uh, you know, I, I ticked off a tremendous number of boxes in terms of um, being prepared to deal with people who have been through trauma, you know. And trauma and attachment have been probably the two most important bedrocks of my professional identity, you know. Now, you spent, I think, over 30 years in clinical practice mm. as a, a psychologist. You contributed an enormous amount in public thinking. You were the editor for Vision for Change. Yeah, there was two of us. We, had, we were the sort of editors. In other words, it was produced by a, a team, an expert group of 18 people. But uh, I was seconded full time for 15 months to, to write full time. And, and that was an extraordinary experience because they wanted it to be in readable English. And that was about thinking about what are the mental health yeah. issues in Ireland that need to be addressed? What kind of structures, yeah. what kind of policies are needed? When you had that chance to look at the roadmap in Vision for Change, were there things in your head that you were sort of saying, this is what I need to do? Because what comes after that, not so long after that, yeah. is your commitment, your advocacy for youth mental health. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think I realised that I was quite suicidal at one point when I was 17, you know, and I, I, I tried something which was very stupid or, you know, unwise and could have ended badly. 
And I think part of my memory has been connected back into that. And, into and that episode the, the, at in, Into someone at 17 who was screaming pain and did not have any way to say it and no one to talk to. And I think that shaped a lot of what I brought to Vision for Change and to Headstrong, a jigsaw. But it was a sense that somebody needed to be there. I think I was doing all this for myself, retrofitting somebody who was not there. And, but trying to imagine there were many, many other younger and younger people who were in that level of distress and need someone to talk to in an easy, accessible way. You know. But that's quite a, a profound approach to youth mental health is not just to say that I've ticked all the boxes and I am a clinical psychologist with all this expertise. You also were entering it sort of saying, I am the wounded soldier. I am the person at 17 who could have ended their own life. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that and I still want to make sure that what Jigsaw does is to provide the kind of support that me as a 17 year old needed but didn't get. So in a way, I know how important it is from having not got it. The other thing that was very important, though, and I think it's worth saying in terms of policy, is that what I was dealing with were real life issues, painful, disturbing, distressing, disabling in lots of ways. But I don't think now when I look back that I was mentally ill. And I think in some ways I didn't get help, but neither was I sent to psychiatric care where I would have been labelled and treated in a, and gone down another road. And again, one has to ask because your mum was the Samaritans. Mm. And at 17, you're having an episode like that. Was that completely disconnected when you say that you didn't end up in the psychiatric services or getting help because your mum actually was in that role. I mean, was she aware of how extreme your pain and she mental had no idea, was? no idea at all. She had no idea. And I was very good at hiding it. And I think young people are very good at hiding uh, mental distress. And that's probably the thing they do best. And I was hiding, but particularly at home. Yeah, we were quite withdrawn, but not apparently in distress. You know, it was all going on deep inside. She, as I say, was otherwise engaged, setting up an organisation like the Samaritans. You can imagine it was 24-7. We had sales of work in our, in our garage, you know, in Malahide Road. And we had all the meetings and early training were in our front room. So, you know, there was a lot happening around it. And... There is an irony, you know, of course there is. Life is full of them. But, you know, that she was doing this to reach out to people who were suicidal. And I was very much on the edge of suicide myself. And in a lot of pain, it sounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now, because you have that sense of being able to separate yourself from the 17 year old you and you're saying, I don't think I was mentally ill, but you were suffering from depression. I was very down, yeah. Yes, in some ways you could say that was a clinical case. Do you still feel that that all relates to what happened to Jim, to Jim dying and the fact that at I that do. stage it I, was an I, echo I, from that pain? I think distress and psychiatric distress isn't caused by any one thing, but it's the whole sequence of things that happen afterwards. I think I got progressively more isolated on myself. I became more hidden, more confused, more lonely. In a way, I, I had no outlet for. And at the same time, I'm trying to go to school and get a leaving cert, you know. So there was all of that conflict in myself and then feeling very insecure as generally with peers. And you wouldn't want any of them to know just what a mess 
fuck up you were in your head. You know, you were, they all seemed to be doing fine and I was really messed up. But you wouldn't tell somebody that because they might just cut you off as a friend. So you talk about Herman Hess, you talk about Camus, or you talk about these wildly existential, despairing writers and, and we'd all have chats about that, you know. But really we were wanting to talk about ourselves, I think. For me, uh, and I did ultimately, I had a very severe depression in my 30s. Um, and, and this is when you were saying yeah, you ended up in family therapy with your yeah. your army dad, who is yeah. reluctant, and your mom. Yeah, I went into very major depression, which I would say was as clinical as anything I've seen. Uh, I, I was very, very down. But working, I still maintained. Functioning. I was, we went to the States and I was functioning in the World Centre for Cognitive Therapy, the Centre for Cognitive Therapy with Aaron Beck. And yet I was um, falling apart completely. So much so that my wife and three children had one day to walk out and go to friends and said, unless you get help, we're not coming back. I mean, I was that bad. And I did. In all those years, I mean, I, I could look back now and say, well, it would have done people a lot of favours if I took antidepressants and was, you know, maybe got a bit of a lift sooner. It took a long time, about two years to come out of it. But the good side of not doing that was that I kind of faced up to what it was and I tracked it back and made links. And I suppose I, I opened up the story of myself in a way that could begin to make sense and hold that pain. The other thing is it, it doesn't all go away because of that. You, you don't forget these things. They, they, you don't erase them, but you become able to assimilate them and hold them. And in doing what you did then from 06 to 09 in creating what was Headstrong, the Youth Mental Health Centre, which, which becomes Jigsaw today, yeah. that was you kind of completing that circle of, of talking to the 17-year-old yeah. Tony and also saying what happened at that point and again that disconnect even with, with no disrespect to either Phil or the Samaritans, but that there wasn't an ability to recognise what was going on in school or at home, that you brought all that into Headstrong. And I suppose what you tried to do was change the conversation mm. and the national approach to how young people navigate their way into adulthood. I mean, one of the, the big things you mm. did was that you yeah. went back and talked to young people who were today's Tonys at 17 and you brought them into the organisation I mean, that seems now very basic in 2018 that people would do that when they're setting up youth organisations. But at that stage, it wasn't the norm that you would actually create a youth advisory and that you would say, what is it you want? I mean, I didn't have a lot of experience with young people. So I gathered around me a youth advisory panel. And in the early days, I had to come up with a mission. And my mission, I remember sitting opposite them, and my mission was, you know, Headstrong is going to help young people navigate their journey into adulthood. And I thought it was brilliant and uh, I looked at their faces and they clearly didn't. And they just looked back at me and just there, they were kind of stony faced, eyes down. And then one of them said, you know, Tony, I said, what's wrong? And he said, Tony, we don't want to be helped. We want to be heard. And, uh, and that kind of stunned me and it changed the trajectory of Headstrong and Jigsaw to being about listening to young people. And, you know, sometimes that's all we need. Uh, sometimes we need lots of other things. But sometimes it's extraordinary, the power of really being listened to and being heard and somebody knowing what we're going through. Nobody can really 
take away somebody's pain. You know, I mean... It's the power of empathy. I mean, what you're describing when people say, oh, it's just listening. It's actually... Oh, no, it's the power of being able to... I actually can't make this better for you, but I'm here for you. I think it's the power of being able to find somebody who is lost inside their own pain and lost to themselves. And you find them and you say, I see you and I hear you and you're okay. This is very difficult what you're dealing with, but you're okay. And and together we're going to figure this out. That's, I think, what therapists do, that capacity to find people. To find people. Yeah. Because we have this cliche, we tell ourselves that sometimes in life we are finding ourselves. Yeah. And yet in many ways we don't recognise we're lost. I mean, what you're saying the therapist does in Mm. a process and what you were trying to set up in Headstrong or Jigsaw is a way to allow someone to be found. I mean, and I've heard, I mean, many encouraging stories from the front line from Jigsaw Services where people... Talk about the change, you know, I mean, I've had mothers and fathers come and say, look, our daughter or son went to Jigsaw and just felt marvellous, you know. And I don't think anything magical was done, you know, and it was it was simply that people there really took pains to listen and to hear and and to kind of get a sense of that person and what they're struggling with and, and in a way separate the two. So some of what they're struggling with needs a kind of a strategic problem solving approach. It needs a bit of uh, they need help to, to confront, you know. And sometimes they do need psychiatric services yeah, and medicine sure, absolutely. and drugs. And, some, and we would send them. But but most importantly, and whether they're in the depths of whatever they're in the depths of, but most importantly, they need a sense that somebody sees me and thinks I'm OK. I like that because I think it's um, it's not getting over something, uh, recovering and over it, but it's that I recover my soul, my sense of who I really am. And now at this stage, obviously, in end of, of 2018, you've handed the reins over. You have retired from Jigsaw. You've moved into a new phase of your life, for Mm. sure. And Jigsaw at this stage, it's part of the establishment. It really is under the the wing of the system. When you look at what you've created, and it very much is and was your baby, when you look at that flow from 2006 onwards to where we are with 2018 with Jigsaw and the story around youth mental health, what do you feel to use that gestat moment? What do you feel about what has been done? I feel thrilled, you know, um, I feel moved. Um, you know, I just feel, I, I think of people at the front line of Jigsaw. I think of the people welcoming young people because I think, you know, half the good we do is just the very way we welcome somebody into a space and greet them with a cup of tea or a, a sense of respect, you know, and it's before anything happens. I think that's extraordinary. Also families, also parents who are just tearing their hair out and have not known what to do. And, 
care and they are the real advocates of youth mental health parents who really want something for their young people and just are banging their head off service doors to get an answer to fight for it they're fighting for it yeah and then I, I just love that people can go and talk and that they can because that was your yeah, mantra somewhere somewhere to turn to and someone to talk to that was what we did and for free and that the, 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 that was a big thing to, to take the money out of it that that wasn't an issue there's no money changes hands in jigsaw at all is entirely free now we were able to get the kind of state support that allows for that to happen. So I'm not saying... And you had significant philanthropic we funding very generous philanthropic funding from Declan Ryan. One Foundation, Declan. And the one Declan. Declan Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. We had Without that. Without that, it wouldn't have started. It would never have started. Yeah, yeah. Like it now has state funding, but this initiative, whatever we may all debate yeah. and think about philanthropic funding... The truth is, Jigsaw would not be here without the One Foundation. I think change never rarely happens from the inside of a system out. It, it happens at the edge of systems, at the edge of society. Somebody does something new and it, it creeps into the centre. It's disruptive. You know, and, and now we probably need something out of the edge yes. to disrupt us. You always need flows <laughs> yeah, you and do. waves. Yeah, you can't. It is terrifying to become part of the status quo. One of the things that I like about what happened, having seen it a little bit from the beginning, was the, the young people people that were involved in the beginning in the youth advisory group, some of them went on to become players, participants, leaders and are now leading in this field like Emma Farrell. Emma Emma's was fantastic. She was a, a youth advisor, the second young person I ever engaged with. And she became ambassador and then she became a representative on the board. And then they made her a full board director. And I mean, she is now Dr. Emma Farrell. She's, she's, she's doctor and she's she's left Jigsaw, which is great for her that she's she's after 12 years of an apprenticeship. She's doing sterling work and research in Department of Education, UCD. And so somebody who fantastic. came in Looking for someone to talk to, for a place to turn, not only found that, but they, because to me, this is the empowerment of the waves rather than the institutions. There's people like Emma or many of the other young people who've gone through and are now into their mid 30s. They're all doing. Yeah. Well, no, some of them are working in the field, which is are in education research with, around youth mental health. But many others are just hopefully living lives as successful accountants or whatever they're doing. And they haven't lost the idealism. And I think when you tap into the idealism of young people and you get them at that time, you when they're most open to it. it, you awaken it and they never lose it. They stay true to that. So mm. that sense of an arc of what was done and achieved. But to come back, centre it to you and to Tony Bates is that... You've talked about these cycles and these moments of pain and trauma and beyond the the story of what you brought to us with Headstrong and Jigsaw, you've also been credited as the man who brought mindfulness to Ireland. Hmm. And partly, I suppose, this exploration of yourself brought you to Buddhism and a form of Buddhism Hmm. and meditation, which we now in shorthand call mindfulness. But how did it happen for you? What I'm curious about is like, when did this light bulb go on for you in terms of Thich Nhat Hanh, the meditative leader? I mean, in some ways it, it came from one of the most severe psychiatric patients in James's who came to me one day and said, look, I have a big box of pills at home. I think I'm just going to take them, you know, so I think I better come into hospital. And he'd had a 
more admissions to hospital than I'd had cups of coffee, you know. So I said to him, do you really want to come into hospital? You know, it was kind of hospital, bottle of pills. I didn't know which was worse, you know. And I, I kind of challenged him, well, what really are the options here? Is there nothing else we could do? And I'd got this book, Full Catastrophe Living on, on Mindfulness, from an old supervisor in the States who said to me, in 94, she sent me the book and she said, this is where things are going to go next. And I didn't know what that meant. And that was sort of the one of the foundation books that brought mindfulness into Western civilization. But anyway, I, I had this book and I said to him, I, I, there's something here that might be helpful. And I photocopied some pages and he came back to me and said, that really helped. And I said, good, fantastic. He said, no, no, Tony, it really helped. Great. Can I have some more? I gave him some more pages. Then he came back and said, this is really, really good. You need to do this. I didn't need to do it. I wasn't depressed. I mean, I was okay. He said, no, no, you need to do this. This is really good. So the patient taught you? Yeah. So I was going to a conference that some people in England were, were doing this. John Teasdale was running a, a, a pre-conference workshop on this mindfulness thing. So I went along and did it. And and at that, I saw an ad for the training course with John Kabat-Zinn, who wrote Full Catastrophe Living. So I signed up for that in September. And, that, and then I did another formal course. And that's what got me into it. I sensed immediately that this really had come from Thich Nhat Hanh. A lot of them were referring to this man and I watched some YouTube of him and I thought, he's really fascinating. He's, he's so simple and, and yet so present. And so I decided I'd go to the you know, master. So I went over in 2004 to Plum Village, which is his Buddhist monastery in South France. And, and I was there for three weeks and I kind of immersed myself in that. And it was fabulous, you know. So, so I these, that three weeks, yeah, is life changing because this yeah, becomes was, yeah. a part of your life which you take a different road, really. And I, I suppose it it's influenced everything personally and professionally. I began to work in a different way with the people in James's, who had particularly I worked with the severe and enduring mental illness. That was the term under which they were categorized, people with schizophrenia, bipolar, for, for, for 30, 40 years, okay? People who were the no-hopers, who sat on the windowsill and nobody saw. They walked by them every day. And I started to work with those and I did see dramatic changes. But one of the changes I didn't anticipate was that in order to do it, I had to become a much more of an equal. So the way mindfulness training is, it's not that the expert comes in and propounds some kind of theory, but that I sit with them and we practice. And I was new to this and I had to be honest with them that I was also just learning to practice. So every week we'd meet, we'd sit and we would, about 11, 12 of us, and we went through the training and we had to report honestly on our homework and how we were doing or not doing. And so it changed the nature of my relationship with them. And the actual practice gave them a method of dealing with their emotional distress in a different way through accepting what was there, letting it be there, but breathing with it and sort of stepping back. You know, it was a different way before, if you like, negative feelings were things we wanted to get rid of. So it gave them skills and tools to steady themselves, to ground themselves, to pay attention and to be able to approach to live with pain. To live with pain. Yeah. And what's interesting, I think, about the process that started post that and after you first become engaged with mindfulness is it's a personal transformation. What's happening in your work, your work is one thing, but this begins to change mm. your own daily life. And yet, no more than what you've said before, it doesn't make all the bad stuff go away. No, I think that's what I've learned. Uh, the, you know, the... 
Some of the bad stuff that's still with me in my body and in my mind and in memory is 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 also sweet. You know, it's it's there's a sweetness about it. I remember Tom Murphy said something extraordinary. He, he was asked, he was being interviewed and they asked him about his depression. And he said, if you gave me a sealed envelope with the answer to, to depression in it, I would not open that envelope because depression has given me so much of what I've needed to write and to connect with people. And and, and I, I feel a bit the same way about my own life journey, but I, I, I wouldn't change any of it. You know, it's, it's what I've needed to become human. Somebody else needs something else. And I guess from, from you wrote for a year in the Irish Times, a year of living mindfully. So I, I suppose from the perspective of how it's become part of your daily breath, your daily life, how do you live a mindful life? I try to be present to people, to what's happening, to the beauty of things that we can miss, to the mystery of life, which is extraordinary that we're here at all. And then just to myself, you know, to what's happening in me. And I listen to what's happening with some degree of respect because body, the body doesn't lie. A lot of what we regard as symptoms or negative feelings are parts of us trying to communicate in the only way it can. And I learned to listen to those and say, no, what's that about? You know, be curious. And the lovely thing of mindfulness is that it brings curiosity and a certain playfulness to these things rather than a, a heavy handed, well, I'm going to fix this. That's not what it's about. Uh, you know, I'm going to notice this and give it room to breathe. And in bringing it into, say, your work with Headstrong and Jigsaw, it also involved working with young people. Yeah. Also, you know, it's been used in institutions. Yeah. We worked before with Richard Roach, the neuroscientist who's worked yeah. with, with the compatriot in mm. prisons. Part of what one hears when you're looking at society and mindfulness mm. is that really what you'd like is that there was a little bit of this in every part mm. of our society, from Dáil Éireann to the courts, to the schools. Yeah. And you've been particularly focused on that part, on schools and young people and the ability to give them that trust yeah. in the breath, in the idea of taking the moment and living with a sense of being present. I mean, if we were to go back to what we said earlier, that one of the things happens for people is they can get very disconnected from themselves. And that can be through work demands or just being raising a family or any number of things, trauma. And mindfulness is, is kind of a way back home. And I, I, I just think schools are places where there's a lot of fear. And I think generally we've become, we're talking an awful lot about mental health, but it seems to me we're not any less frightened of our inner lives. You know, people are still very nervous about them. And because people are talking about them in schools, then people are even more nervous about them because they feel they're meant to be able to do something about these things. So the teachers are quite fearful. The students are more conscious and fearful. And I think everybody literally needs to calm down and trust what's happening. Listen to it and trust it. It's not random craziness. It's it's pieces of our lives that are trying to come together, you know, and if we can just listen with that degree of trust and, and establish ourselves so that we're able to face some of these things without losing the head, that's what people need. 
And in saying that, it comes back to what you said about yourself at three in losing your brother and the spike of the 17-year-old Tony wanting to end it all, of the 30-something-year-old Tony saying, I want to find a path through this, uh, by even if it means something as dramatic as family therapy, is that, as you say, living with it means you recognise the pain is still there. Is that something that becomes in any way easier with age? Or is that always yeah, I, I don't, this balance uh, of every day being that discovery of how... No, I, I don't see myself now as depressed. At some level, I'm, you know, silently terribly happy. You know, I really am irrepressibly happy. And, you know, yes, I have bad days and moods and that, but I'm not, not clinically depressed. I, I was, definitely, but I haven't been. It's the only advantage of ageing, I mean, there's a lot of disadvantages, but one of the definite advantages, you, you begin to kind of, you begin to lower your standards, you know, and you begin for to... For happiness. For, for everything. I mean, I just, I'm much happier with who I am. Yeah. You be, for yourself, you begin to see limitations and say, it's okay. That's fine. It'll begin, do. It'll do. I'm fine. That's as far as I can push things in that, in that department. It's fine. I'm not going to be a great concert pianist, but I can play a little bit of piano. You know, it's fine. Because your expectations, um, even listening to you today, are quite high on yourself. Has that changed? Have you learned to sort of say, I'm OK with it'll do? I think there's a difference between what I would aspire to create and what I would want to see happen in the lives of people. And I still have very, I have my own vision of what change might could look like or could be. And it's very important to pursue that. Who I am in the pursuit of that is is someone who's probably, I'm far more realistic about, you know, and in terms of my energy and what I can do and what I can achieve on any given day. So so I, I, I'm easier on myself. And yet I don't think I've become any less... Ambitious. Ambitious or idealistic about things. Because I, I, I do believe it's possible to come together and to be ourselves and to be fully alive. You know, I do believe that's possible. And I've seen it not just in my own life, but I've, I've had the privilege of working with thousands of people over 42 years who where I haven't always, but I've seen it happen. That person I mentioned who gave me the book, is um, has come out of an abominable psychiatric career, really horrible, really severe, and is giving a concert next week because he came back to playing music, which he had lost. And is I said to him, how have you managed this? I said, you were nuts. I mean, really. <laughs> you know, Are you allowed to say that? <laughs> I am. Um, I, and I actually, he became so good at mindfulness and benefited that I, I funded him. We raised some money and we sent him to Oxford and he worked and became a teacher himself. And he helped me then in courses I gave when I was In leaving. mindfulness? In mindfulness, yeah. And he came in and did some training with my staff. So um, that was a really good photocopy you did of those two pages of the Kabat-Zinn book all those years ago. It was extraordinary. Uh, but he, he said to me, he said a wonderful thing. He said, you know, he said, mindfulness. I said, what has it done for you? He said, well, it's allowed me to establish myself in myself at any given moment. And what he meant precisely by that, I'm not sure, but I get enough from hearing that to say, yeah, it resonates for what I, I experience, which is that I, I come home to myself or I come back to who I am and with a certain, you know... Degree of comfort. Comfort and compassion and kindness because, you know... What I find is not always something I'm thrilled about, but it's it's OK. We are not perfect. And mm. 
in this new phase of your life, you've moved to Sligo. Yeah. You're, you're looking over the wild Atlantic way. You're writing yeah. very actively. Hmm. What's in this new phase of compassion and kindness to yourself, but maintained and sustained ambition for change? I think there's two things. One is I'd like to kind of pull together a lot of my own experience. And I, I'm writing a memoir at the moment and that'll be... A memoir? Yeah. And kind of a, you know, and you know, I mean, two people might read it, but I want to do it. I want to do it. It's important to me. I think I've had a, a thrilling adventure and I think I've been very privileged in the kind of meeting Thich Nhat Hanh and having him as a teacher and lots of other wonderful people, Aaron Beck and people like that. that Who were big influences on you. Big influences, yeah. So I've had a great adventure and I want to, yeah, I want to kind of pull that story together in a kind of not a heavy-handed way, but in a personal way. So I, I'm working on that at the moment and I'm really enjoying it, I have to say. The other thing I'd like to do is to get one last nudge at the whole national conversation on mental health. I'd love to look Vision at how... for change. Vision, yeah, well, just a more general conversation. That's part of it. But, you know, particularly I was witness to a very different kind of experience of mental ill health. Uh, I would have been in Grange Gorman in the in the 70s when what I saw and what I remember was very different to what one would see now. And I, I remember the, yeah, and I remember the, my mum and, and her, her, the stigma that was that that's changed. So there's a great deal more openness. And I want to look at how far we've come, and, but also I want to get a sense of where we, we, how we need to evolve. And I'd love to go to that edge where we're growing in our consciousness and, and understanding of mental health and, and just see to nudge that a bit. The quest is always to live at the edge, but to have enough of a rope, no matter how thin or fragile it is, in order to come back in. Yeah. And I suppose that's the the danger zone that can often be in, in exploring that, whether as an artist, a creative or as a person, it's like the ability to go there, but to be able to get back up. Well, we're talking about the edge and we're talking about mental health and we're talking about mindfulness. But I mean, Heaney said it in two words or two lines, you know, sometime take the time to go out west to County Clare along the flaggy shore. I mean, that is the invitation. That is about, for me, the invitation I tr I've tried to respond to throughout my life, which is to not be afraid to go to that edge, the edge of my own place where there's a flaggy shore, where there are headstrong looking swans, which is where I got the name for, for, for headstrong, and where there are, you know, light and darkness are playing and shadow and all together and not and to be fascinated by that and to let it blow the heart wide open to let it blow the heart wide open. Mm. I think that's a good and rounded way mm. to pull you back from that edge. So, mm. Tony Bates, thank you very much and very best of luck. We look forward to seeing your memoir and to hearing your journey back from the edge. Thank you. Thank Helen. you. Thank you. Thank you.